Captain Charlie Plum, thanks for calling in, my friend. You bet. Privileged, honored, and humbled. I know you hear that all the time, but to speak to you is such an honor, man. I've uh, admired you from afar, so thank you for coming on, man. I really, really, really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Mike. Husband, war hero, motivational speaker, prisoner of war, author. You just don't stop, do you? Hey, life is good. <laughs> life is good. I'm glad you keep yourself busy. So first of all, let's talk about your book. Everyone has a story to tell. Some stories are more extraordinary than others. Obviously, you fall into that category. Your book, I'm No Hero, available everywhere. But go to charlieplum.com to buy it because you'll sign it for everybody. How was that process of writing the book? Did you enjoy that? Yes, I did. You know, it's a bit of therapy for me to think back to that experience and pick out the positive parts. Writing a book, I always like to speak to non-authors, Captain, whether it be military people, astronauts, athletes, who never wanted to write a book, or the truth, a lot of us aren't educated enough to write a book and do that process. You said it was therapeutic for you. What else did you get out of writing that book, helping you, did helping others? What was your mission for writing this book? I will tell you that I did not want to write the book at first. I was like most people you talk to, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't think I had... A guy came to me, you know, shortly after I was repatriated, he said, you need to write a book. I said, what could be more boring than spending 2,103 days in an eight-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell, you know? <laughs> I said, no, seriously. I said, go find somebody to climb the mountain, you know, or, or slam the English Channel. Uh, if somebody did something special. You know, it, it, nearly six years of boredom is nothing to write about. <laughs> and then what, what was your overriding reason for writing it then? Well, this guy kept twisting my arm, actually. And people... And, <laughs> And, and people kept asking me uh, the story. When I first came home, it, you know, there had been a lot of mystery around Vietnam and especially the POWs in Vietnam, and everybody wanted to know the story. And so, every, you know, on the street, uh, my, my picture was on the Kansas City Star front page for four, uh, four times in the first two weeks. And every, so everybody knew me. And I got so sick of it. And I thought, let's see, I'll write a book. And when they ask me a question, I'll just hand them the book. Now, I, Captain, I knew you. I knew you grew up in Kansas, but you were born in Gary, Indiana. So all I know about that is the Jackson Five. That's when I hear Gary, Indiana. I think Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. How long were you in Indiana before you left there? About uh, six weeks. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then you moved to uh, Kansas. Now I hope you're not a Kansas basketball fan because I'm a Kentucky fan, sir. So is it going to be a problem? Oh, here or... brother! No, no, no. Rock, chalk, Jayhawk. Oh. Okay, you. All right, sir. So we had a good time. <laughs> this was a blast. Now, so uh, now you had a normal childhood in Kansas, right? Normal run-of-the-mill childhood growing up, right? I did. My, I had a great childhood. I, I, I grew up in. in I was I was a rich kid. I was really rich. We didn't have running water, indoor toilet till I was seven. <laughs> but we were we were rich in family unity and love and and uh, wow, what a, what great parents and what great brothers and sister I had. One of my favorite quotes ever is, "Uh, people. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. That's that's it. I love it. Um, when uh, I love having military and police people on, Captain, because it takes a certain human to willingly put themselves in a dangerous position to protect life, liberty, for the love of their country, for the love of citizens. Why the military for you? Why not college over the Navy? I will tell you that I mean, I'd love to say, you know, that I that I did it for for the flag and love of country and freedom and all that stuff. I needed an education and, and my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. So I started looking for scholarships. And, uh, I, you know, I sent my my resume to, to everybody, just the old shotgun approach. I got an appointment to Annapolis 
I had no idea what they did in Annapolis. Uh, <laughs> really, <clears throat> I did not know. I thought the Army Navy game was uh, just played by by a bunch of soldiers and sailors, and you know, in some dirt lot. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so you put you applied for it. You got accepted it because I remember you you said you were fourth on the list, and that confused me a little bit. What does that mean? You said you weren't the first choice, wasn't the second choice. What did that mean? Well, I was, I was the fourth appointment from this congressman. Uh, the first guy uh, also had an appointment to the uh, Air Force Academy. It was brand new at the time, so he went to Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second guy um, decided he wanted to go to University of Kansas, and the third guy found girls and. and that, that, that's a big mistake when you go into an all boys school. <laughs> and then now, so you get to Naval Academy in Annapolis. Any good stories of hazing, or was it right to work? Even though you're quote unquote a freshman, is it right to work there, or how does that work? Man, yeah, no, it was. I was totally out of my element mm-hmm. uh, as a plebe. It's, it's a boot camp at the Naval Academy, and uh, man, I did, I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to shoot you know, chew gum and walk at the same time. And, <laughs> and, uh, I was really a fish out of, out of water at that place. It took them, it took them at four years to whip me into shape. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned fish out of water. Cause you said it was the first time you ever saw the ocean. Is that true? That's right. Oh. I, 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 I'd never been out of the four States of Kansas, Nebraska. I was, well, of course I was born in Indiana, but I don't remember that very well. <laughs> Now, when you're there, was there any chatter or was there an opinion on the Vietnam War? Was that even a thing back when you started? No, uh, no, I we I didn't even know where the Vietnam was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I no, we we didn't study Vietnam at, at all. Uh, the war didn't really get started until well, uh, about three months after I graduated from the Naval Academy was the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which started the Vietnam War. So, uh, no, we didn't study Vietnam at all. We, we studied war. Uh-huh. And lucky, you know, lucky for that, because one of, one of the reasons I think I survived and even thrived through that experience was we studied uh, prisoners of war. And it, it was something that was really indelible in my mind was about a third of the POWs of Korea died because they gave up. They just lost the will to live. They they crawl over in the corner of their prison cell and assume the fetal position, and, and, and they pass on. Wow. And and so I, I, I'll never forget in the middle of the, the torture and the first day I was there, I thought, man, I, um, I, I if I die in here, it's not because I'm, I gave up. <laughs> wow. They they they're gonna have to work uh, to, to make this happen. <laughs> now, one thing is, I know you got your wings, but how long are you in school? Like, for example, if you go to a regular college. And, you know, after the yeah. second year, oh, I'm going to major in communications or, you know, psychiatry. When in school, when in Annapolis, did you say, I want to become a fighter pilot? I want to get my wings. Did you always know that was going to be the path you were going to take? You know, I remember as a kid in Kansas looking up and seeing a Piper Cub fly over and wondering if I could ever ride in an airplane, if I could ever really be above the ground in an airplane. Well, at the Naval Academy, uh, we, uh, four years there and in an engineering degree, but the closer I got to graduation, the more I started thinking about what course I would want in the, in the Navy. You can go in submarines. You, know, you can go in the Marine Corps uh, from the Naval Academy. Um, even at the, And so I, I got in with a bunch of guys that really were interested in aviation. Well, during our, our um, junior, between our junior and senior year at the Naval Academy, we sample all these various things. We go on a submarine and we go play with the Marines for a while went down to Pensacola, Florida, and had a flight 
in a trainer down there. And I was just thrilled. I'm just absolutely uh, enamored with this, uh, with, with flight. Mm-hmm. Just got, it got in my blood at that time. So I applied. And sure enough, I was one of the fortunate, fortunate ones uh, to, uh, to get to go to flight training. And, and that's how it all began. And, and I still have that passion. I have two airplanes today. I have a, an antique airplane from World War II, and I have a, an experimental airplane. And I terrorized the skies of Southern California. <laughs> hey, when you got your wings, what was your plane of choice? Did you get to pick what plane you wanted, or what plane were you assigned? Uh, I, I, I didn't. To tell you the truth, I wanted to fly fighters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, of course, front, when you get your wings, you know, you can go to helicopters, you can go to multi-engine, you can do, do all those boring guys. And I thought, no, I want, I want to be a frontline fighter pilot. And, uh, and so I, I applied for fighters and I got the hottest airplane, uh, in the world at the time, uh, uh Mach 2 uh, F4 Phantom jet was, so it was my plane. And was it a badass plane? Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I'm telling you, that thing even looks, it looks mean, it sounds mean, it is mean. <laughs> now, how long, obviously you graduate now, you got your wings, now how long until you get deployed to Vietnam, and what was your reaction with like, hey, Captain, you're heading to, you know, Charlie Plum, you're heading to Vietnam, what was your reaction? Oh, uh, I was excited to go, you know, I was excited, 18 months in flight training, another six months in what's called the RAG, Replacement Air Group, where I learned to fly the F-4 Phantom. It's kind of interesting because when I first got to Miramar to fly the Phantom, there was a there was a waiting list of about uh, four or five months, and I was really I was really disappointed and frustrated because I couldn't go fly this supersonic jet. <laughs> well, my buddy my buddy Paul Krukey and I went down the flight line there in Miramar, and we found an instrument training squadron. Okay, this this squadron trains guys to fly in the in the soup, and it's a, it's really a, a very boring squadron because they don't do anything but go up and grind around the sky uh, with with a hood so they can't see out. And so, but these guys were flying the same airplane that we had flown in flight training, the uh, F nine Cougar. And this is a little jet airplane, and uh, you know it, it, it's slow and it's light, and uh, but. So, so we'd fly these students around. We signed on, you know, to, to do flights in, in this little airplane. And so we'd fly these students around, but we'd save a few hundred pounds of jet fuel every flight. And at the end of the flight, we would uh, we'd climb up to about uh, 25,000, 30,000 feet. When the Phantoms, the fighters, came off the runway at Miramar, we'd pounce on these guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was really all kinds of fun. So we'd dogfight with, with these phantoms, and we'd wipe them out every time. I mean, it, it was incredible because uh, we, you know, the, the phantom was built as a high-altitude supersonic interceptor. It wasn't supposed to hassle with the MIGs. Supposed to, be, you know, that we were so fast that we were supposed to outrun anything in the air. And so we were pouncing these guys. They didn't know how to dogfight, and we wipe, wipe them out. Okay, so <laughs> so so one day, so we after a, a particularly successful mission. Paul Krukey and I came back with our white scarves and our Snoopy goggles and high-fiving because we had a great flight. <laughs> and at the bulletin board in the, uh, in the training room there in the instrument squadron, it said, Plum and Krukey report to the commanding officer of the Phantom Squadron immediately. Oof. Uh, uh-oh, yeah. So, so here we are. T- t- two, we are 23 years old. And in, in sweaty flight suits because you you, you know you, you really work out the sweat when you when you're pulling six or seven G's, <laughs> and uh, and so 
so we, 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 we knock on the door. I'll never forget this guy. He's an old guy, you know, about 30, maybe or 35. <laughs> okay. And he's sitting at his desk. Okay. He's in a sweaty flight suit too. Okay. Which should have been our first indication. <laughs> he looked over the top of his glasses, you know, he was half blind. He looked over the top of his glasses and he said, you the two guys out there and, and the Cougars fighting the Phantoms. Uh, man, we were shivering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Said, said, did you follow a phantom through an entire loop? Uh, y- y- yes, sir, we did. Did you have your guns trained on that phantom the entire time? Yeah, uh, well, 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 sir, we did. He said, I was in that phantom. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, thought, we thought we were toast. Of okay. course, of course. Yeah, he was ready to pull our wings right there. Okay, then, then, then he looked at us, kind of a serious look. He said, I just got back from Vietnam. He said, they're eating our lunch over there because we don't know how to fight these airplanes. How about coming back tomorrow and teaching us how to dogfight? Wow. That was the first, wow. That was the first, okay, that was the first flight of the Navy Fighter Weapons School, later named Top Gun. That is incredible. What a yeah. great what I'm I'm speechless with that story. That's great. So now, now now you're a big shot. Now people know who Charlie Plum is, but you're a uh, you, well, no 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 I'm still not a big shot. Not yet. But now so let's let's get to your I hate to I always hate pigeonholing people from this story, but this is how I know you, the book, people know you. You're deployed to Vietnam. What was your daily like day-to-day assignments or missions before you get to that faithful um, 75th mission, the previous 74, were they eventful? What were you doing? What were your assignments in Vietnam initially? Well, uh, you know, every, every Navy fighter pilot has a, has a, another duty. Okay. And so we have a position within the squadron and I was a maintenance officer. And so I had a crew, I have a crew of about 75 mechanics uh, that, that worked for me repairing airplanes and fueling airplanes and, and uh, doing checks on airplanes. And so my day uh, usually started about uh, six in the morning or so. And I would meet my troops and I'd go brief for a flight. Uh, and the briefing would take uh, maybe an hour going through all of the, everything uh, that was happening in the air, all the intelligence stuff, you know, where's the enemy, where's the target. All this stuff. Uh, what are the frequencies? <clears throat> and then uh, I go on the flight, come back, and there would be a debrief of another hour. Okay, by that time, I'd probably have lunch, probably go talk to my, my mechanics again, <clears throat> make sure everything was okay there. Then we'd have a second brief and, uh, and go on a second flight and then a second debrief. And so, uh, and sometimes it was even a third flight of the day, but usually it was two. Now, there were two Phantom Squadrons on uh, the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk that I was on. And one of the squadrons uh, had the, the mission of fighter for two weeks, and then they would switch and have the mission of, of, of attack. They would, they'd take bombs and rockets and, and, uh, and shoot. And so uh, half of the time we were configured, the airplane was configured with missiles to shoot down other airplanes. And the other t- half of the time we were configured with bombs. <clears throat> so that, that, that became a bit of a problem because the, the airplanes were quite different to fly. Uh, the, uh, as fighters, we took off at about mm, 40,000 pounds. And when we have bombs on, we'd be up to 66,000 pounds. And so the airplane felt a lot different. So, um, so, so there was, uh, and, and the maintenance on the airplane, of course, was different as well. So just a lot, a lot of stuff going on. <clears throat> um, 
about the only recreation was in the evening where all fighter pilots would get together in the ready room and tell lies to each other. <laughs> about all the big things, like I caught that big fish that they were saying? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's jump now to Mission 75, most likely your last mission on this deployment because you were going home in five days. What date was that? And I know the date's important because it was, I believe you said it was Ho Chi Minh's birthday, correct? Yeah, 19th of May. 1967. And now I know you told the story a million times. I truly apologize, but what happened during that flight that changed your life? Well, it was, uh, we were the fighter role. Okay. So I had missiles, uh, to protect the rest of the, of, of the, uh, of the flight. Uh, my radar intercept officer in my back seat, my RAO, uh, spotted a target, which is about 20 miles away and coming at us really fast. I moved out of the formation uh, to to go take a look at this. What we thought was a MIG. I'd had I'd had uh, hassles with MIGs in the past. Okay, I uh, had uh, in fact I had three of them cornered at my six o'clock position one time. <laughs> uh, but but and I'd never shot one down. I'm getting near the end of my tour, and uh, several of the guys in the squadron had shot down a MIG. Of course, that's you know that's the ultimate thing for a fighter pilot. To shoot down another airplane. Yeah, of course. So I eased out of the, the side, and as we came closer and closer, across, we're going, I don't know, five or 600 miles an hour. <clears throat> the target's coming at us about the same speed. So the closing rate was really pretty fast. And uh, so I slipped out to the side of the squadron so I can go get this MIG. <clears throat> the, the rules of engagement at the time were really crazy. You had to visually identify the aer- another airplane before you could shoot it down. And so, and I guess it was good that day because when I got close enough to see, mm-hmm. it was not a MIG. It was one of our A6 intruders jamming the jamming the SAM sites, uh, the surface-to-air missile sites uh, that were training on my flight. Well, uh, so now I'm 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 I see this guy, but now I'm not I'm out of the range of his protection. Okay. Okay. And. And so I said, oh, man, you know, it's not a MiG. It's uh, one of ours. And I tried to get back into the formation. Before, before I got back into the formation, I'd been hit by a SAM missile that, that of course, wasn't being jammed by this guy that I thought was a MiG. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's kind of a, you know, a, a series of, of errors, mm-hmm. uh, you know, big mistakes on my part. Um and not you know leaving the protection of the of the squadron. Now, so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. So I, I was going to say. So now this missile. Now before we talk about the missile, what do these missiles look like while you're up in the plane? Because I know we can watch movies or you know see a thing. What does an actual missile look like? Not when it's coming at you. You obviously saw them out there. Can you describe what one looks like? Yeah, it looks like a, a flying telephone pole. Uh, you know, with a sparkler at the end of it. Uh, they're about uh, forty feet long and about. 18, uh, 18 inches uh, in diameter, uh, and uh, and they're not very they're not very maneuverable. You know, they're long and lanky and fast, but they can't turn. Mm-hmm. And so we found that you could actually turn really quickly after they got in close to you, and uh, and they'd go ballistic. But the key was you had to wait until they got. Close. It's like a bullfighter, you know, with a you know, with a with a with a red, um, with a, with a red cape, yeah, uh, like a matador waiting for the last second. Exactly, you got to wait till the last second, and it's a it's a time thing because if you if you jink too quickly, 
before, you know, when the missile was far enough out that they compute this this lead pursuit course on you and they cut you off at the pass. So you have to wait until they get within like a quarter to a half a mile. And, uh, and then you jink out of the way and the thing will just go fly right past you. <clears throat> so and, uh, and and so if you could see them, you could probably avoid them. Well, uh, again, the F-4 Phantom was built uh, to fly at high altitudes and shoot, you know, shoot down Russian bears and then make a slow turn, come back to the aircraft carrier. We did not have any electronic countermeasures in that airplane. We thought we were too, well, we were flying too high for the SAMs, okay, and too fast. We could outrun them. So we had, and so when I first joined the squadron, you know, I'm asking the old timers, hey, what do I need to go to Vietnam? I say, well, go down uh, uh, to the radio shack and get yourself a fuzz buster, you know, a, 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 a highway patrol. Uh, sure, sure, like a scanner. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a scanner, and uh, they say, you know, the, it turns out this Russian-built SAM is is um, works on the same frequencies as, as the California Highway Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm serious. This, this is the truth, uh, and so here, I, you know, here I am flying this this airplane. I got I got that you know little suction cup stuck to my my windscreen. I got a little white wire running down the, under my uh, uh, G suit and torso harness and under my oxygen mask and plugged into my, my ear. I'm, I'm flying this, you know, this $30 million airplane being protected by the $30 fund. <laughs> so, so the, go the ahead. Problem, go. The, the problem was, uh, the, it, it only told you when, uh, the missile radar was sweeping and then when it locked on, it did not give you any directional uh, indication as to where it's coming from, and so uh, you know frequently when I when my fuzzbuster went off, you know I could turn real quickly and see the missile, and see when I could see it, I could avoid it. Anyway, this particular day, when I the, you know the 19th of May, um, I, I I didn't see I, there were several missiles in the air. My my fuzzbuster was going off like a calliope. And I didn't, uh, I, I didn't see it. Came, it came from behind. So um, it hit, exploded to some twelve thousand pounds of jet fuel we had on board. Um, sent that airplane topsy turvy in into wind. My, my, my. Um, uh, we found ourselves upside down, uh, going down at about. I don't know. We're probably six or seven hundred miles an hour. And um, my co-pilot's getting all concerned. <laughs> he was talking to me in a voice about two octaves higher than normal. <laughs> yeah, who would be a little worried on that? And don't tell me. You you were keeping it cool while he's freaking out. You're like, dude, calm down, right, Captain? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I had this special problem because we were upside down. Okay. Uh, we had ejection seats that shot us out the top of the airplane. <laughs> and so I figured to eject. From that altitude, upside down, was going to plant us in the rice paddy. <clears throat> so, had to turn the airplane upright. Grabbed the stick. It was frozen. Wow. I lost all my hydraulic pressure. Um, the only control on an F4 Phantom that's manual, in fact, it's it's boosted, uh, is the rudder. Uh, rudders don't normally turn airplanes over, but I can can guarantee if you hit one hard enough and say a prayer loud enough, <laughs> think, it's turning think, over. And it shuddered and rolled upright, upright where I ejected. My 
my co-pilot ejected. We came floating down over enemy territory. Now, how far, Captain, when you get hit with this missile, obviously you're flying down. And I, I know you said this before, but it saved your life that you didn't eject right away because you probably would have been floating there and the enemies could have just shot you down, correct? That's probably true. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of kind of hard to <clears throat> Sunday morning quarterback it. But, yeah, I, pro- I probably would have uh, died. So now you land. How far did you land from where you got hit? Because obviously you're flying over. How far, like, was the <clears throat> distance that you were hit? Um. The distance from when I was hit and where I landed. Correct. Uh, only a, you know less than a mile. Oh. The airplane went right in. In fact, as I'm floating down in a parachute, I can see the wreckage of this airplane. <clears throat> Pretty sad sight. Now you're on the ground and you see a man running towards you. Oh, but he just has an axe in his hand. You had a gun. Uh, so right there, you're winning this fight. But then there's ten other. I believe you called them peasants, I, I, I believe, in the book, and they're running towards you. Did, were you thinking in that split second, I'm going to die or I'm about to be a prisoner of war? Did either of that thought even came to your head? Yep, yep. Uh, in fact, uh, that the, the ride in the parachute was about, I think, uh, a minute and a half, maybe, or two minutes. And, and so I was, I was contemplating, and they were shooting at me while I was hanging in the parachute. I thought that was kind of unfair. Yeah, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> you know, they just knocked down my multi-gazillion dollar airplane, and, and now they're shooting at the pilot. <laughs> I, found, I found that when you're dodging bullets, it's tough to come up with a long-range plan. <laughs> now, sir, you're taken to the Hanoi Hilton. How far was that from where you land? You're, you just got captured by all these Vietnamese. How far is that, I guess, ride to this jail? You know, I was very fortunate, actually, because I was shot down – in the in the outskirts of Hanoi, mm-hmm. uh, the unfortunate guys were shot down in Laos or Cambodia or e- even in the in the mountains of Vietnam, and, and uh, it would take them months, some of them months, and, and some were severely injured. Oh. And they were dragging these guys through the jungle. So I was a re- very a fortunate guy. Uh, it, it, the, that uh, jeep ride was probably uh, thirty minutes. I was and I was at Hanoi Hilton. Now you get to the Hilton. Uh, different Hilton that we all know. And now, did you know other Americans were there initially, or did you think you were alone? No, no, I knew other Americans were there. Um, I knew of the prison camp. You know, we we knew it was from our intelligence briefings. And, uh, and, and of course, at the time, there was only fighter pilots in the prison camps there. It was an air war. We were being shot down. And so it was all fighter pilots. And, uh, and, and of course, I knew some of the guys. In fact, uh, two of my squadron mates had been shot down about uh, a month earlier and, and, uh, and their parachutes were seen and they were known to be prisoners of war. So I, I knew them and several other guys. Some of my Naval Academy classmates had been shot down by then. So yeah, no, I was quite aware the other guys were there. Now mentally, now you know you're there. So mentally, because obviously now it's a mental thing. You're going there. You have to go into survival mode. Did you know it was going to be a long sentence. Like, obviously, you weren't going to get released overnight. So did you think, okay, mentally I have to prepare myself now for a long haul here, and how can I survive? I was the ultimate optimist. As a matter of fact, when I was first, <laughs> no, when I was first shot down, you know, I'm thinking, you know, those guys are, are, are five days from going home, but that ship's going to take another week to get home. And if this war ends and I'm released, I'll be flying home. I'll probably beat the ship home. <laughs> <laughs> now being yeah. the, being the optimist were you um were you, were you early on in escape mode i have to get out of this survival <laughs> mode or like okay let me take it easy and assess the situation 
No, it was escape mode. The entire time I was there, I was in, in the escape mode. We we were we planned. We we uh, talked about escape. We gathered things to help us escape. It was just uh, you know no. Even even in the parachute, you know, I'm looking down. I'm looking for tree lines that I could hide in. You know, I'm looking for little rivers that I could swim in. And um, and so and and even in the in the prison camp itself, we were always looking for ways to, to escape. <clears throat> One time, I found <clears throat> a bunch of termites, and 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 I, uh, I in in a in a boarded up window in the board of the window, and I. I took these termites over and I tried to get them to chew down the prison cell door. (laughs) I turned out, I found that termites are really tough to train. (laughs) Speaking of, uh, you know, the wooden door that you wanted the termites to break down, I get chills and I truly get goosebumps. Every time I watch you give a speech on stage, you take three steps, stop, three steps, stop, and you turn around. Explain why you do the three steps, stop, and turn around. What's the significance of that? Well, that's that was what I did, you know. Uh, that was our exercise, was this pacing. Um, we call that the Hanoi Shuffle, and and everybody did it. You know, you just pace three steps and you turn around and pace three steps the other way until you run into a wall. Uh, and I and 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 I walked literally thousands and thousands of miles uh, in that little eight foot by eight foot prison cell. Now, the Vietnamese guards didn't want you, obviously, to communicate with the other prisoners. And uh, this was one of my favorite parts of the book, and I love when you tell this story. You became a master of underground communication. How'd this happen, and how'd you communicate? Because, Captain, I write everything down. I'm one of those old-school guys that write everything. A pen is always with me. And you said that's one of the things you missed the most, having a pencil with you. So you guys couldn't communicate. They didn't want you to talk, and they didn't want you to write. So how'd you become a master communicator? Well, I, I really found it necessary. When you're alone, solitary confinement in a prison cell, you start to lose track. You know, you, you really, especially if it's dark, uh, and a lot of the camps were dark. I was in a lot of different prison camps and a lot of different pr- types of prison cells. And they gave me a roommate, you know, after a while. But when you were alone and it was dark, <clears throat> you, you had no feedback. There was no sound board. You didn't know if you were alive or dead. And so it was just uh, a a, a hunger, you know, to communicate with somebody else. Well, so I'm in this solitary confinement. And I, I hear this, I hear this um, cricket in the far corner of my prison cell, and I went over to check it out. It was a wire. I tugged on the wire. It tugged back. I tugged again. It disappeared. But it came back a couple hours later with a note wrapped around the end of the wire. Uh, this note written on a piece of toilet paper uh, said, "Memorize this code." then eat this note and so i did i memorized the code i ate the note and started to communicate with this guy and that was the beginning because of uh of the communication system and we found that it wasn't necessarily the 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 data that we were passing around you know it was the, the secret to survival in a prison camp was communication, but it wasn't the, the words. It was a validation of another guy. Uh, because when you don't know if you're alive or dead, you know, just to communicate with somebody else proves that, you know, that you're real. That, and so so we, we left no stone unturned and came up with some very creative ways to communicate. And this, uh, this code was a series of, of tugs on the wire or taps on a wall to represent various letters of the alphabet or abbreviations. And we, we call it the tap code. 
and uh, it's a five by five matrix of the alphabet, five lines, five rows. And, and so A is first line, first row, that's one, one, and Z is five, five. We left out K, just mm-hmm. to make it come out even. So we use this in all kinds of ways. If a guy was allowed outside to chop wood for a fire, okay, he would chop in this code. Chop, chop, <laughs> chop, chop, chop. Wow. Yeah, we call, yeah, we call that a radio station <laughs> because hey, because everybody in the camp could hear this guy tap. We also designated when we found out that you know seventy percent of them had tuberculosis and and, uh, and they assumed that we did too, and so they they would cough and spit and wheeze and and they didn't mind. We couldn't whisper a word, uh, but we could cough and sneeze and uh, all day long. So we made up a code where different guttural noises would be represented by different letters. And so you wake up in the morning, hear the guy's next door go. (laughs) And that that means, good morning, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Now, a a certain school thought this was such a creative idea. You got college credits for this. Is that true? Well, yes, not for the communication. Uh, But University of Maryland, as a matter of fact, gave us credit for for the courses that we taught each other. You know, we were we were nearly 100% college graduates. We had a lot of masters and some PhDs in, the, in that prison camp. These were fairly educated guys. And so we started teaching each other the courses that we knew. And so we, you know, we taught French and Spanish and Russian and biology and physics and mathematics. And, uh, and so when we came and, and this is, tap, you know, tapping on a wall, uh, the other side or uh, or or, uh, sometimes you could slip a a note a piece of paper like that first one i got Mm -hmm. and when we came back university of maryland uh, gave us credit for courses we'd taken without professors without books without powerpoint um without computers um i i i i uh, i taught a course in sailing believe it or not (laughs) unbelievable seriously it it blows your mind to know what you guys went through and to, to keep up how strong you guys were, my grandfather was a World War II vet. He served in the Army. Uh, Go Army, yeah. beat Navy. I'm just kidding, just kidding. But Uh-oh. he, no, no, he loved, I loved hearing him stories. It would just be him and I, and he would tell me these badass stories. And I loved the story you told in your book. They were questioning you, and they were basically going to torture you if you don't give us answers. And you said to them, bring it on. Captain Plum, you should tell that story to my New York Yankees before a big game because they would run through a wall for you. I'm telling you that right now, but I don't want to I don't want to sensationalize the torture you went through, but obviously in the book, I'm no hero. You can read all about it, but one part, they basically tied you up into a human pretzel, beat you, bloodied you, and then asked you questions that they already knew the answer to. Why was that? Well, I think they were trying to check my answers. They they wanted to make sure I was telling the truth, and so they asked me a question that I already knew the answer to. Uh, and 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 of course, you know, as a military guy, uh, and you go through a survival school and you learn the code of conduct, and it says if you're a prisoner of war, give only name, rank, serial number, date of birth. <clears throat> that's what you, that's what the code is. Well, obviously, it's pretty tough to follow that code when you're when you're uh, rolled up in a like a pretzel. <laughs> The first question um, that they asked me was, uh, what base did you fly from? Uh, well, you know, I, I knew that they knew because it had been written, uh, you know, on, on my parachute. And, and that's pretty tricky. You know, the military tells you to give name, rank, serial number, date of birth. They write your ship on your back. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so I knew that they knew the answer. And so I said, uh, I flew from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk, the, the, the ship out there on the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, that's a lie. They said a lie. Tell us the truth. <laughs> so I'm telling you the truth. That's, I, I, I flew from, from the aircraft carrier. Uh, they said, we know that you could never get an airplane the size of, of the airplane you flew on a boat. Mm-hmm. We know that we know that get an airplane like there in the sky, you need a runway that's at least a mile long. And so I said, well, you see, we've got a lot of ships out there in the seventh fleet. We just line them all up. <laughs> and they believe that. Oh, really? Really? They really did. The, 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 the really phenomenal part of this culture is how naive they were and how little they knew about the rest of the world. <clears throat> now, these guys who were asking me these questions weren't the brightest guys either, but they did not understand at that point in the war. I, it, it sounds crazy, but at that point in the war, they did not understand that they were being hit by airplanes that were coming from aircraft carriers. They assumed that they were like, you know, their military mm-hmm. and they, they had to have a land base. <clears throat> so, so it was, um, and, you know, not that they were stupid at all. In fact, a lot of ways, they had more uh, instinctive uh, wisdom than we did. You know, these guys could, the, the enemy could hear and smell and see, and uh, they had an unbelievable intuition. Uh, but as far as knowing what was going on in the rest of the world, the communists, communists had uh, kept them away from all that. Now, you were then paraded and basically shown to the Vietnamese people as like an attraction as, uh, you know, look what we just got. Now, at the time, were you thinking, wait a minute, this isn't bad. My family, my wife at the time, they're going to know I'm alive. Was that going through your head or you just didn't even think about any of that at that point? Nope, nope. It was alive. I had married my high school sweetheart and uh, and I was really worried about her not knowing if I was alive or dead. And so it was it was Ho Chi Minh's birthday, their president's birthday. And so they had a big party and presented me to their president. Now, I was blindfolded, obviously, and handcuffed, and my face was pretty well beaten. When, uh, when this picture got back home, and, and it, it was like two years later after the picture finally got back to the States, um, and my, on my, I, my, my face was swollen and my eyes were closed, and uh, my, my brother thought I was dead. So... So they knew I'd been there. They just did not know for sure that I was alive. Wow. Now, I have to – the the number you said it earlier, 2,103 days. I can't even fathom that number. How old were you when you got in and when you got out? How old were you? What were the ages? I was shot down when I was 24, and I was released when I was 30. Oh, my God. So I had uh, six birthdays. Wow. While in the camp, and I hate to even bring this up, suicide, was it, was it a thought? Did it ever come in your mind or it just didn't even get, get in there? Were yeah. you, you were too strong to fight it in there or was it part of your everyday life? No, never ever did I think about take, taking my own life. Um, I, and, you know, sometimes I wonder because the pain was pretty, pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And, of course, after year after year after year, when I didn't know if I was ever going to go home, that was pretty intense too. But I never ever thought about suicide. While you're there, what was uh, what gave you hope? What were the glimmers? Were there's like, uh, hey, it's now listen, I'm gonna make a joke here. Was it Taco Tuesday? What was what gave you hope and glimmers of uh, happiness while you were there for six years? Because it had to be some, right? 
Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, in fact, there's a lot of similarities. I think with some some of the stuff we're going the isolation that we're facing today, you know, with this pandemic, is that uh, I first of all I went back through my my mind, my history, and uh, and I tried to remember every every book I'd ever read, every movie I'd ever seen, every T-shirt I've had, every team I'd ever played, every girl I'd ever dated. Now that that took a while, <laughs> but. But um, and then, so I that took about three months, and and, uh, and until I was exhausted from, uh, you know, putting this this big uh, autobiography together, and then I went forward. I planned the rest of my life around my wife. Wow! Uh, wow. And so I planned every birthday, every Christmas. I I knew every ornament on every tree, uh, Christmas tree for twenty years, and. Uh, and 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 then and that took several months. And when I when I when I finished that, I thought, well, maybe she's not going to want to stay in the military. Let's plan this a different way. And so I went from uh, at 20 years having four kids and a big home to having two kids <laughs> and living on, and living on a sailboat. <laughs> What uh? Hey, Captain. What food were you craving the most? Now you're, you know, Kansas guy. Was there a food you were craving the most there? Like your last meal. What what food did you need? Like if I can just have this one meal here, what were you thinking of the most? Uh, well, I, you know, Kansas City barbecue is what I. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. What food were they yeah. feeding? What feed, food were they feeding you there? Was it just uh, rice every day? What what were you eating there? Yeah, rice every day. Uh, two meals a day. About you know a little bowl of rice. Now. We also have some broth, um, and uh, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have uh, I didn't have a cup of, of lean meat in a year. I wouldn't have a cup. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, some some fat, you know, in the soup, uh, in the broth. Uh, at, at one time, there was a bakery uh, that was built uh, in, right across from from the prison. You could smell the the bread being baked in that bakery. <laughs> wow. And, oh, were, you and, just, were you just craving it? Yeah. yeah. That, that was... Now, it wasn't like a prison here, obviously. I found it fascinating. I didn't even think about this, Captain, is that you didn't know who the president was. You didn't know who won the World Series. How do you mentally contain that unknown? Like when, when, when you mentioned the president, I said, oh, my God, they were there six years. They didn't know what was going on in the United States of America. So you didn't know who won the World Series, who won this. How did you mentally deal with that, like the complete unknown? Well, you know, we made up things. We fantasized about things. You know, we played these games in our minds, um, and 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 we we actually sometimes would find a, a, a new prisoner would be shot, and if he would come into our camp, man, we just picked that guy's brain on all everything that was happening in the states, and so uh, it wasn't that we never ever knew who won the World Series. It was just we wouldn't know for for months. We were we were some of the last guys to know that we'd put a man on the moon. Now, a lot of us were in the initial stages of the astronaut program. You know, the, the first astronauts were all fighter pilots. Mm-hmm. And so, so I was, I had applied and they'd done some of the testing. And, uh, one of the guys actually had, um, uh, had orders to NASA the week he was shot down. And so we all, you know, and we all knew we lived through president Kennedy saying, we will put a man on the moon this decade. Not because it's easy, because it's difficult, you know, and and uh, and so we all cheered. Well, <clears throat> so uh, it was uh, late 1969, probably November of 1969, uh, and 
they they would give us pro- communist propaganda. A lot of guys wouldn't read it at all. Uh, I found that if you don't read something for several months, you actually you lose the ability to read because you wouldn't think it. But if you don't read something for several months, do you look at a word and you wonder what that word means? It, it's kind of crazy. So anyway, I thought it was pretty good exercise. It was kind of you know fun to to read this communist propaganda. So here's an article in the TASS news agency, and the headlines were, uh, the Soviet Union finally beats the United States in the space race. And I well, that's interesting. And, it, and, and so I started reading uh, on, it said, not since Sputnik 1 has uh, the Soviet Union been farther ahead in the space race. We've sent a vehicle to the moon, gathered samples, taken pictures, blasted off, returned to Earth, and Unlike the Americans, we didn't have to put a man aboard to control the vehicle. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that and, is cool. Yeah, and that's the first we knew that we'd actually put a man on the moon. I know you get into the daily schedule because, you know, you and the other heroes had a routine. But years and years and years and years go by, and suddenly something happens. The guards are being a little nicer to you. They're letting you play some games. Did you know what was going on now? Now it's six years now, over 2,000 days. You're like, wait a minute, they're being nicer. Did you know change was coming right away? Not really. We had been tricked like that before. Uh, In fact, they had announced that the war was over you're going home, you know, pick, get your stuff ready and then sign this confession and you can go. Uh, and so we, we, so we, you know, we had seen this uh, before. Um, it was then, I, you know, I, I guess the first real indicator was that they brought in a pair, a, 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 a sheet of uh, like wrapping paper, put it on the dirt floor and said, put your foot on this, this paper. And so they traced around our bare foot and they were going to make a pair of shoes for each of us. And of course, we hadn't had any shoes for six years. And so it, it was kind of obvious that they were going to make some shoes for us to wear home. And that plus, uh, you know, better food, not outside a little bit. And, uh, uh, and then they came in and sized us up for pants. Uh, so... So by that time, we were very hopeful, but we still didn't know if it would be a trick or if it would really happen. It wasn't really until, uh, you know, we got on the bus, went to the airport, um, got, on the, got on a big C-141 airplane and, uh, and lifted off enemy soil. We all broke loose and started hugging and kissing the Air Force nurses. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right before that, because I, I want to ask two silly questions. How did the release actually happen? Did they open up your cell and say, all right, guys, you're free? How did that happen, like the actual release? Well, first of all, they came in and opened the cell and said, you guys are going home. And we said, no, we're not going home until the sick and injured and enlisted men have, have gone. And they said, what? They <laughs> 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 said, no, you know, we, we, you know, freedom is vital. Us, but but not without the integrity of our unit. By this time, with the communication and the leadership, the excellent leadership that we had in that prison camp, we were so tight, you know, we were so bonded that we were not going to to go home early uh, before the sick and injured guys went. And so, the, of course, the camp commander was really upset with that. He said, "You're going to cause an international incident if you don't get on the airplane." <laughs> and we we said, "No, you know, we're not going." And so uh, this, you know, it was high drama for several hours. And, uh, and they finally brought 
in a computerized sheet, well, uh, and it was signed at the bottom uh, by Henry Kissinger that the first plane load of guys had gone, and it was it was listed by by man by individual. It was the manifest of the first plane. It was also our prayer list: the sick, injured, and enlisted guys. So they'd gone, and now it was our turn. And so we formed a platoon outside that prison that I've annoyed them that we, they, you know these military guys would form a platoon and called cadence up two, three, four, wow. three onto the bus. Uh, the bus took us to Geelong Airport, mm-hmm. the airport that we'd seen from the sky, you know, in the air raid, the, the, the attacks that we had had on the airport. But this time it had this big old C-141 uh, with a flag, American flag on the side of that airplane. It was a beautiful sight. Uh, there was some formalities, uh, the, you know, the enemy side, and their desks and, you know, making sure who we were. And then the American side and uh, every, it, so every one of us was assigned an escort, a, a guy who, uh, you know, had uh, had sort of done the due diligence on each one of us. And so they, you know, they knew who we were and our parents and, and gave us all the news. <clears throat> and they rode back with us. Uh, uh, on a 90-minute flight to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And I'll never forget because we we circled over uh, the aircraft carriers that were still on station there in the Gulf of Tonkin, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was the Kitty Hawk that I'd just taken off from, you know, uh, six years earlier. <laughs> was still still afloat, uh, still, still down there with airplanes my god and now you get home to the united states you greeted with horrible news your wife filed for divorce she was marrying someone else but in your reddit ama you had the greatest line you said suck it up put on your big boy or big girl pants and you got to take control of your own destiny and get on with your life now captain when you were home was there an anti-war anti-vietnam uh vietnam uh sentiment towards you or to the people you came home with or no no there was not and it, it was very, very fortunate because that would have really been disappointing. Uh, and, and we felt when, when we found out about that, we felt really bad for the guys that had come home earlier. Uh, when I came home, and this was kind of a, well, I, I almost call it a political stunt. It wasn't really a political stunt. It was just how the, how the nation felt. Uh, the nation was so relieved, you know, that this war was finally over. I mean, it was just on and on and on, and nobody could believe that it went on so long. And finally, when it was over, everybody breathed this great sigh of relief. And so the return of the POWs was one of the things that that people could look to as being uh, the closing of the chapter, of this terrible chapter um, of, of, of the United States. And so... Uh, people celebrated and I was in ticker tape parades and they got thousands of gifts. Ford motor company gave me a brand new car. Oh, they gave, they, they gave us all tickets to the world series. As a matter of fact, <laughs> wow. Hey, what, what, what world series was it? What year? Do you remember? Uh, it was 1973. Oh, okay. okay. So, and, and I go ahead. I, Captain. As, as it turned out, I didn't go, but, uh, but a lot of the guys did. And, uh, and, and in fact, um, in fact, one of the guys went to work for the, for the Padres later on in his career. So. <laughs> when, uh, now, how'd you meet your beautiful wife now? Because too bad, Captain, the internet wasn't around. Because, sir, if I was you, I would have went up to every girl in the bar and just Googled my name right before I met the girl. So how'd you meet your beautiful wife now? 
I'm, I'm telling you, Captain, that's all I thought about. I go, poor Captain Plum. If he would have came home, I would have brought out my phone and be like, hey, just follow me on Twitter, babe. Or, hey, check out the Google Captain Charlie Plum. But uh, how did you meet your wife? I'm always curious how people meet their wives. Well, well, to begin with, there, there were a lot of uh, very patriotic women when I first came home. Of course, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I – I, I, uh, even though you know I, I had just uh, gone through this divorce, uh, there were some nice things about being free. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't bad. The picture was on the front page of the newspaper for four days in a row, was it? No, it wasn't. As a matter of <laughs> fact, it's kind of interesting because uh, one one of the news ladies I'd interviewed on Kansas City Television, and uh, about the third time she asked me back for an interview, I asked her for a date on live TV. And so, and so everybody wanted to know, you know, how did it turn out? And it, it was kind of cool. But uh, my wife uh, runs a seminar at Pepperdine University for high school juniors going mm-hmm. into their senior year. And uh, so the, the uh, seminar talks about dream the impossible dream. And so she has all kinds of speakers, you know, uh, Tommy Lasorda spoke there for 20 years. Uh, uh, who else? George Foreman speaks there every year. Uh, so she's got great speakers that come and talk to these kids for five days. And then they talk about, you know, dreaming the dream and living and all that stuff. So she asked me to speak at this seminar. And, uh, and I told her, no, uh, you know, I do this for a living. I've got an honorarium and you're not paying your speakers. <laughs> And uh, so my wife says to me, I think I can quote her almost verbatim. She said, she said, well, Captain Plum, put your feet up on your desk for yourself another cup of coffee, because at the end of this conversation, you're going to tell me yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yada, yada, yada. And you're happily married. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Four kids and four grandkids. Matter of fact, (laughs) so (laughs) I told her yes. (laughs) Now, Captain, I've had you for 55 minutes. So we're going to finish up with some uh, a few quick hit questions. Sound good? Sure. In your history of ticket tape parades and meetings and this, who's the coolest person that when you met them, you were in awe of them? Like, holy crap, I'm standing next to who? Well, that's uh, that's interesting question. Uh, John McCain was my flight instructor, so mm-hmm. I knew him before we were shot down. He was shot down five months after I was. And uh, he was just an amazing guy. And I suppose that if I you know, think of one character that I'm in the room with that I'm at all. It would probably be John McCain. Besides Top Gun, what's the best war movie or documentary? Well, uh, the war movie that affected me uh, the most uh, probably was The Deer Hunter. Uh, and that has a couple of scenes in it where the, the prisoners, the POWs were playing Russian, Russian roulette. And uh, they actually did that to me as well. And uh, and so that that was most you know that, that was the most effective to me, um, but I love Top Gun too. Yeah, of course, um, of course you do. <laughs> when uh, when people go to jail, Captain, and they come out now, they're shown iPhones and iPads and this and that. When you got home, what invention or something really blew your mind? Mini skirts. <laughs> that was the greatest invention of, of your lifetime, right? <laughs> it had to be. <laughs> Um, have you been back to Vietnam since all this happened? Have you ever went back? I have. I went back four years ago. I didn't want to go, okay. uh, but they but they wanted me to come back and be part of a historical project. I was going to meet the camp commander, a guy in charge of our, our torture, and I was going to meet some of the fighter pilots that I'd fought against. 
and I didn't want to go. And they said, well, how about uh, we bring your family? We'll make a vacation out of it. And I said, okay. So I went. And, and I met the camp, yeah. met the camp commander. And, but pr- probably the most, uh, most important part of that, of that whole thing, uh, and I found the Vietnamese people wonderful. You know, I, I had forgiven them long ago. Uh, most of them aren't old enough to remember the war. So we, we really had a happy time together. But nobody in that country knew that prisoners of war were tortured. The last day I was there, uh, I'm in a, in a park. I'd sent my, my family home. I'm, I'm in a park in the middle of Hanoi. And there's this lady selling postcards. Uh, and she's missing her whole right leg. She's on crutches. And got this bag of postcards slung over her shoulder. Post, who wants to buy a postcard? And she approached me. She's speaking excellent English, but I could tell she's an older Vietnamese lady about my age, as a matter of fact. And I said, I'll buy a postcard, but uh, 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 how about uh, talking to me? Tell me your story. I said, how'd you lose your leg? We sat down on a park bench together. Uh, I still have pictures of this. Uh, she said, linebacker two. I said, linebacker, too. That was the secret code word for the B-52 bombings in, at the end of the war. Uh, is, I, and, and I'm really wondering if she's telling me the truth. I said, what was the date? She said, uh, 24 December 1972. Yep, that was the date. Wow. And so I said, you speak excellent English, and you're out here selling postcards. Why, why aren't you a docent in a museum or an interpreter? You could be an interpreter. Oh, she said. My country would never give me permits to, to do that. They would not have an invalid representing their country. Oh. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself, here, okay, here are two people uh, sitting on this park bench, okay, both scarred by this war. One of them has two airplanes, two sailboats, drives a big car, lives in a big house, and the other is, is eking out a life selling postcards in a park. And the only difference, because this lady is at least as smart as I am, the only difference is the culture that we live in, that, you know, that we have the freedom in this country to go and do and be whoever we want to be. And she did not. So a lesson to be learned. Wow. That, you know what, Captain? That is a perfect way. Now, I want you to do me a favor. Just plug the site, your Twitter. You're great on Twitter. You're on Instagram. Plug where everyone can get the book. Do, do all the, the plugs for us. Well, uh, my, my, my uh, website, charliefund.com. C H A R L I E P L U M B dot com has all the stuff on it. And as you said, I autograph every book that I send. Um, I'm at Captain Plum, C A P T P L U M B on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a series of short videos, one minute videos now, about isolation and, uh, and how we work through the, the pandemic. So uh, you know, I'm, I am very open and uh, transparent and uh, try to be as honest as I possibly can. Uh, of course, see, I, I speak for a living. I'm a motivational speaker. So I've made over 5,000 speeches in, since I came home from Vietnam all over the world. Uh, I'm out of work right now <laughs> because nobody, <laughs> nobody's having any meetings. So I spend my time on Zoom, you know, with clients and, uh, and doing these videos. But, but I love what I do. Captain, 2,100 days. Well, 2,103. That's how many days you were there. What binge-worthy TV shows are you doing now? Because I know when people like, oh, you know, Captain, you go on Twitter, people complaining about being in the house, but we got Wi-Fi, Netflix. We can go. Deli- we can get beer delivered to our house. Is there any binge-worthy TV shows that you're watching now? Uh, I write. I, I, I love reruns. <laughs> two and a Half Men. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I figured out Two and a Half Men. 
if, you know, if you, if you know that, if you know that that TV series, uh, Charlie Harper is the fantasy that everybody wants. The guy yep. that has all the women. And all his, his brother Alan is the reality. Most of us, you know, <laughs> stumble around life. <laughs> Captain Charlie Plum, listen, your book is incredible. I love that you kept your sense of humor. It's very similar to that of a cop of law enforcement. The worst and most horrendous situations we still make a laugh of. Uh, your definition of the word freedom, 31 years of service. And I love the book, the chapter on reflections, because it's relatable to everyone. Every human has all those emotions. You you cover all those emotions. And it's something we should all deal with, with despair and perseverance and how we can overcome. So thank you for your 31 years of service. Thank you for coming on my show, being an inspiration to a million people. And you were a hero before you were shot down, before you were a prisoner of war. So thank you for everything, Captain. I love you. And thanks for coming on, my friend. Mike, I appreciate that. Please pass along my thanks to, to your troops, you know, your, your fellow uh, cops. I, I have the greatest respect for what you guys do. Uh, you're on the front lines. You're at the point of the spear now, and, uh, and I salute you. Captain, we'll be in touch, my friend. Thank you so much. Uh, bye-bye. Have a great day, sir. Thanks.